couple years ago, I think it was 2014, that's still a couple years, right? Four years ago. Um, there was a press conference, a rally, a, um, a demonstration outside of the courthouse in Newark, New Jersey. There were two groups who were there protesting and speaking about the violence that was happening in their community. And, and so they called it a, a non-violence rally. And uh, as the rally was going on, one of the gentlemen was up speaking and he started talking about the mayor and, and, and just you know some places that he felt like he fell short. But the problem with that is that the other group of people that were there also rallying and protesting nonviolence in Newark, New Jersey and the things that were happening were very strong supporters of the mayor. And it was absolutely amazing as this, this press conference went on that, that it began to escalate and, and it went to arguing and arguing went to shouting and shouting went to shoving and shoving went to grabbing a person by the neck and throwing them down on the courthouse and holding them and squeezing them until the police came out and broke up this huge fight that began. And here's the thing. It was a non-violence rally. Do you see the problem here? Now, the, the reason I bring this up is because did they truly, truly believe in nonviolence? No, right? Because if they believed in nonviolence, one of them wouldn't be choking out the other one on the court steps of, of Newark, New Jersey's courthouse. They wouldn't have been doing that. So they actually didn't believe. They just said they believed. Now, I say that to you this morning to challenge us in this. Because sometimes we have to be honest about even ourselves. There are a lot of times in our life that, that we really don't live by what we say we believe. Right? There are times in our life that we really don't live by what we say we believe. Take your notes out with me real quick if you, if you can, if you grabbed a bulletin on the way in. Um, because I, I, I want to point you to a, a scripture that we've hit a few times in the last couple of months. And it's Joshua 1.9. And listen to what it says. It says, this is my command. This is God talking to Joshua. He's now leading God's people. He's entering into the promised land. They're about to cross the, the river and, and about to tackle Jericho. And listen to what he says in Joshua. He says, this is my command to you, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Now read the bold part with me. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, what if that is true? Because that's a promise that God gives over and over throughout his scripture that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will be with us to the very end of the age. And if that's a promise, look, if I was to take a poll this morning and I would say, how many of you believe that to be true, that God is with you everywhere you go, more than likely, a hundred percent or very close to it, hands would go up, right? They would. We say we believe it. But the question I have for you this week or this morning is, Is the way that you lived last week or the last few days, did you live as if God was with you wherever you went? You see, sometimes there's this disconnect between what we believe and and the way those beliefs are lived out and acted out. I put this, this statement in your notes. It says, the promise of God, the promises of God are only as powerful as our faith in living them out. 
In other words, it's this. God, God gives us all these incredible promises. If you take just a moment to read God's word this week, you'll find incredible promises that he gives us. But these promises are powerless and worthless if we don't put our faith in them. And if we don't live as if they're true. That's where the rubber really meets the road. When we live as if these promises that God gives are true. There's an incredible principle that you find all throughout scripture. One of the stories is in Matthew chapter 9, where two blind men approach Jesus and they ask to be healed. And listen how Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 9 verse 29. He says, then he touched their eyes and said, read it with me, according to your faith, say it with me again, according to your faith, let it be done to you. The principle is this, that as, as God moves in the lives of his people, he requires us to put faith, and not only just thought faith, but act faith on what he says. And he asks us to live as if those things are true. Say this after me. Lord, help me live as if your promises are true. Amen. So we're going to talk about that today. Just a couple thoughts for you. And the first one is this. What does it mean to live like it's true, that these promises are true? And the first thing is this, is that we have to follow the call of God, though we don't know where we're going or why we're going there. To live like it's true means that we follow the call of God, though we don't know where we're going or, or where we're going or why we're going there. There are times that God nudges us in life. And if we're honest, they're leading us to a place that we don't have all the answers to. And we don't really necessarily know exactly what's going to happen when we get there. Does it sound familiar? I believe as a church, we're living out this principle where God laid on my heart that this is the direction that he wants us to go. That being in Circle Cross Ranch and, 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 and serving this community and seeing what God can do in us and through us, that this is a beginning place. But here's the crazy thing about it. I don't know exactly how it's all going to end up. And I don't know exactly all the steps it's going to take to get there. All I know is that we have to be faithful in this moment. Amen? There's this guy named Abraham. Abram, before God has changed his name. You can find his story in Genesis chapter 12. When God approached Abram and he says, Abram, there's, there's a place that I want you to go. You have to pull up your stakes, pull up your tent, take your family, and leave and follow me. To a land I will show you. Now he doesn't say to a land I will tell you. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to map this thing out. We're going to Google map this, and I'm going to put a star on where we're going. I'll give you the distance. I'll give you the direction. I'll give you the GPS, turn left, turn right, fight here, don't here. I'm going to do all it. He doesn't say that. What he says is, I'll tell you when you get there. You just have to go in obedience. How many of you want to go on a trip like that? Now, there's a few adventurous people, and they're like, oh, yeah, let's get on the road. Let's go. But that's hard. That's not easy. Abraham was 75 years old when God said, okay, it's time to go. It's time to go. There's a place that you've never been. And you're going to do things that you've never done. But you have to go. And then he promises Abraham this. Are you ready? 
If you go, I'll bless you. I'll bless you. And the even better promise is this. Not only will I bless you, but I'll bless the world through you. But you have to go. I'm not telling you where. I'm not telling you why. I'm just, you're just going to have to go. <laughs> when I graduated high school, I felt like God was calling me to the ministry. And uh, I knew that early on in high school. And, um, and I had picked out the perfect college. It was Dallas Baptist University. It's a Christian college, and it was only 15 minutes from my house. I could drive there in the morning, and I could get there. And I thought, this is going to be the place to be. I mean, I'm a home guy. None of my family ever moved anywhere other than being right there. All my cousins lived within 10 minutes of each other. That's the way to live, right? I loved it. I said, DBU is where I'm going. And so I went to a junior college for a year. And I said, when I, when I get done with junior college, I'm gonna, we're, gonna, we're going to DBU. I'm going to live at home. We're going to rock this out. And I'll still be able to hang out with all my buddies and all my family. And then God said, no, 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 no. I have a different place I want you to go. You're going to go to Mid-America Christian University in Oklahoma City. Look, I was from Texas. Texans don't really like Oklahomans. Are you, they separated us with a river for a reason. Now, I love my Oklahoma family now, but then I was like, no, 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 no. There's a red river, and it's red because of all the blood that we've, you know, all the football. Yeah, it's there for a reason. And I got to that campus. I really felt like God called me, and so I went. And let me tell you, I didn't like it. They had a lot of really bad rules that I didn't want to follow. They, they had rules like this, is that Monday through Friday, you had to be in your room by 10 p.m. College students. I hadn't had a curfew since I was 16. My parents, my dad looked at me when I was 16, and he said, Jared, now I'm not going to tell you what time you have to be home, but you're a nun. You carry my name, and if you mess this up, I will squash you like a bug. Enough for me. But I didn't have a curfew. And I remember the first time I was doing a paper all night long because it was due the next day. Anybody did that in college? And I was writing that thing out, and I thought, you know what? I need to, I need to power up. So I'm going to go get some sodas, and I'm going to go to the snack machine, and I'm going to get some sugar, and I'm going to power through this thing all night long until I finish this paper. I was a procrastinator by nature when it came to college. I was good. I walked out of that room and started heading down to that soda machine, and an RA, a resident assistant, looked at me and he said, where do you think you're going? So I'm going to go get a soda. Do you know what time it is? It's 10.05. You ain't going anywhere. I said, bet. <laughs> bet. You can write me up, but I'm, like, I wasn't the best, most obedient person in college. Because here's the thing. I thought the rule was dumb. And not only did they expect you to be in your room at 10 o'clock, they came to your room and checked. And if you were asleep, they opened the door just to make sure. Are you kidding me? God, you're sending me where? I don't, I, I don't want that. But I went. And can I tell you this? God did more life-changing and more growing and more preparing me for ministry in those three and a half years that I spent at that college a completely different person. Not because of the rules, but because of the people. And then I graduated. And God said, you know what? You're headed to Missouri to be a pastor. I was like, that's the wrong direction. Home is south. You're taking me northeast. I don't, I don't want to go there. I want to go here. 
I was the first person, not only was I the first person in my, my family to go to college, I was the first person in my family to go away to college, and I was the first person in my family to go away to work. Now, not only did I make my parents mad, but every single one of my relatives looked at me and said, see, you see what you've done? You've opened the floodgates. Now all of our kids are going to think it's okay to leave. What is wrong with you? And I went, and I did not enjoy Missouri most of the time. I was living in a 600-square-foot house all by myself with Arby sacks stacked up to the ceiling because I didn't know how to cook. And I only had two channels that worked on my little twist knob TV that you had to push the thing in to get it to adjust. And so all the when I couldn't have anything good to watch on TV, I watched the movie Notting Hill. Anybody seen it? It is the cheesiest rom-com movie on the planet. And if you want to watch it, invite me over because I absolutely love it. I've seen it probably 250 times. That's all I had. It drove me bonkers. But God used my time in Missouri to shape me and to introduce me to people that would help me along in my ministry that maybe never would have happened unless I went. Sometimes God says go. And it's difficult and it's hard, but it can be the most life-changing decision that you ever make when you follow God's voice. And he says, not only am I going to bless you in your obedience, but I'm going to use you to bless others in your obedience. God's call, I put this in your notes, is not always about blessing you. Sometimes it's about blessing through you. Here's a second thought. If you want to live like it's true then you need to obey the commands of God even when they're uncomfortable or inconvenient. Jesus was really honest. He said this, he told his disciples once, he says, no one comes to the Father but by me. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And here's the thing about this life that I am. I want you to live life, and I want you to have life more abundantly. There is freedom in being one of my disciples. I mean, it is the way to live life. But you know what he never said? That it's, that it's going to be easy at all. As a matter of fact, he said something quite different to his disciples. Look in your notes, Matthew chap- or actually Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says, then he called a crowd to him along with his disciples and said this, whoever wants to be my disciple, are you ready? Must deny themselves. Circle that word deny. And take up their cross. Circle the word their cross. And follow me. Deny. Take up their cross. Now, to those people, those disciples of his, when they heard take up their cross, they had a very clear picture in mind. They had seen crucifixions before. They had seen what it was like for someone to carry a cross. And they knew what was at the end of that journey. It wasn't a surprise. There was a very vivid picture. When we read take up their cross, it's very sanitized in our brains today. But to them, it was very gruesome. It was very ugly. And it was leading to death. And Jesus said, this is what it means to be one of my followers. You have to deny yourself. And you have to be willing to take up a cross and follow me. A lot of times we we talk of following Jesus. But we forget those pieces of the journey. Now, how many of you would be willing to admit this morning that denying yourself is not easy to do? Anybody want to get there? Let's be honest, right? 
Look, I don't like those words. Deny? No, not for me. I want it. And not only do I want it, but I want it when? Now. I don't like this deny stuff. Look, the whole weight loss journey, it's it's 20% exercise and 80% what? What you eat, right? Now, I, I don't mind the exercise. There's a lot of people that love working out and love doing those things, but nobody likes to deny what comes in their mouth. We want the chocolate, we want the sugar, we want the pizza, and we certainly want the Chinese food with the white rice that has lots of carbs. I mean, I just want to devour that stuff. But it doesn't get where we're going. It doesn't get us where we're going. That's the hard part. It's the deny. And when it comes to the commands of God, it's easy to do the things that we love to do, right? But then when he starts asking us to do some things that we don't enjoy, there's some things that he says, I want, there's some things I need you to say no to. There's a, there's a toxic relationship that's, that's pulling you away from me. It's time for you to say no to that. There's, there's a habit that you have in your life that's, that's dishonoring to me and that's pulling you away from the way I want you to live. And it's time for you to deny that habit. Or it's maybe it's speaking up when your friends are suggesting a way that you know that pulls you away from Father, from our God. That, that denying, that hard part is is what it means to live as if his promises are true. There's a golfer by the name of James Hahn. Anybody recognize that name? He's a professional golfer in the PGA Tour. James um, is an American from South Korean descent. And um, he started out, um, I think he played for, um, is it University of Cal Berkeley? Is that right? Does that sound familiar as a college name? Something like that. Something in Berkeley with the end of it. And... um, he was on the golf team, and then when he graduated, uh, he turned pro, but he started his, his golf career in South Korea and Canada. And then uh, when he eventually made the tour, um, he, he started out pretty well, and in 2015, in February 2015, he won his first tournament. And in that year, he actually placed in the top 10 of the money earnings for the PGA Tour because of his consistent finishing. He was he did really, really well. And what's amazing is by the end of the year, he actually ranked in the top 100 golfers in the United States, which gave him an invitation to a certain tournament that's the holy grail of golfing. Anybody know what that tournament is? The Masters. He got his first invitation to play in the Masters in 2015. Now, for golfers, that's the of golfing, right? That's what, that's what they play for. It's that tournament that makes you a legend if you can play well and possibly win. The first day of his first Masters, he actually played decent. He was right there in the middle of the pack, playing well. And then on the second day, the very first hole of the second day, he gets onto the green and he lines up to make a putt. And when he put his putter behind the ball to address the ball to start his putt, the ball moved one dimple. Now, if you know anything about golf, when you, when you address a ball and you place your putter behind it, If that ball moves, it's a one-stroke penalty. Now, here's the thing. Nobody saw it except James. 
He saw it. As he stood over that ball, and that ball moved one dimple and rolled back towards his club after addressing the ball, he stepped back, and he called an official over, and he said, Sir, I've got a, I've, I need to place a one-stroke penalty on myself because my ball moved. The official said, I didn't see anything. He said, oh, I know you didn't see anything because it just moved one dimple, but I saw it, and it moved, and it changed its location. And at that time, it, it was a one-stroke penalty. And he says, I have to call it. So the official marked him down for a one-stroke penalty, and he got behind the ball, and he made his putt. I'm not sure if he made the putt or not. But by the end of the day, when his round was over, and they were tabulating the cutting point to start the next round, day three and day four, Guess what happened to James? He missed the cut by one stroke. One stroke. One moment of integrity cost him his opportunity to play in the Masters on day three and day four. Now listen. Listen to what James said. He tweeted this after the match that day. He said, I missed the cut by one, period. Sometimes you don't get rewarded for doing the right thing. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't do the right thing. Sometimes you don't get rewarded for doing the right thing. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't do the right thing. That is living by what you say you believe. That's living as if God's promises are true. Here's a third thing. Are you ready? Is that you have to stay faithful even when things aren't going the way we want. You have to stay faithful even when things aren't going the way we want. Sometimes we have this feeling, this thought, that if I just love God, and I just do all, I just don't do any of the bad stuff in life, and I I try to focus on doing the good things, then life's going to be okay. It's all going to be good. And sometimes, being faithful in those situations can be hard, right? It can be hard to do the right thing, even when it's trying. Sometimes life is hard. Our culture has... I, I, I describe our culture sometimes in, in two words. It, it's, it's quick and easy, right? That's the culture we live in. Things are quick and easy. Did anybody else here grow up mostly on microwave food? Anybody? It's just... I, I, know, I knew you were going to raise your hand, Troy. <laughs> His mom's shaking his head. I don't know what you're talking about. Microwave food. Now, I didn't really grow up on it, but when I went out on my own and moved to Missouri and started my life, man, if it wasn't in a sack or if it wasn't in cardboard, it didn't get eaten. Because I, I, I didn't know how to cook then. Now, I'm the cook in our family now, but then it was really bad. And you just put it in the microwave, you hit three minutes, you walk away, and that frozen burrito miraculously turns unfrozen and hot. You munch down, and you're good to go. It's quick, and it's easy. And I got sick and tired of it. And on Sundays... When I was first in ministry, you can picture a 24-year-old Jared standing like this in the lobby of the church, just looking as pitiful as he can to see if one of those sweet old ladies would take him home for dinner on Sunday afternoons. Oh, yes, really. I was like, who's the little boy that said, please, uh, may I have some more? That was me. I just looked as pitiful as I could to try to get an invite. And here's the thing. I would bring Tupperware in my backpack just in case we could get some. Oh, no, 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 don't worry about your I got some. It's all good. We're going to chow down. I was just, please, sir. 
And I remember the first couple times I went to lunch at someone's house. And they said, it'll be ready in 45 minutes. And I said, 45 what? Did you mean four or five minutes? Because that's what goes on in a microwave. No, 45, because we actually have to cook homemade food, right? That takes a little bit of time. It's like 45, four or five? No, 45. It takes time to cook something good. The true test of things is that can you stay faithful to what God is calling you to do and to be, and especially when it's hard? He says, it's just going to take some time. Can you be faithful then? Ecclesiastes 3.11, the message translation. The gentleman who wrote the message translation, Eugene Peterson, theologian, actually died this week. Um, I'm sure he's enjoying heaven. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He says, God made everything beautiful in itself and in its time. Are you ready? But he left us in the dark. So we can never know what God is up to and whether he's coming or going. How many of you have ever looked at God and said, God, what in the world are you up to? You coming? You going? What are you doing? He says, this is, this is the way God operates. He doesn't want us to know all the answers. He doesn't want us to know exactly what he's going to do and have, try to think that we have him figured out in some sort of formula. Does God work in formulas? No. I heard a def- definition once that said success is, ab- is being able to go from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. That that's success. We aren't required to be successful as followers of Jesus. We're just required to be faithful. And why this is so important is this, is sometimes we come to church on Sunday and we have an amazing worship experience and we have an okay message and we leave here and we're just like all jazzed up, ready to go. We're like, yeah, let's get this week started. And then we get home and our kids start acting and we're just like, oh no, Jesus, what happened? And we get to work the next day and something fell apart that we were counting on. We're like, this is, this is, I don't, what happened, God? I mean, this was amazing, and now life is like this. Why in the world am I going through this? If this is the way life is going to be. And the feeling is, is, is what am I, why am I doing it? And we get this attitude, you know, I just want to give up. If God's not going to protect me, if God's not going to make my life easy, if it's going to be hard, then why, just, why don't I just give up? And here's the thing, folks. This being a follower of Jesus is not quick, and it's not easy. Sometimes to live like it's true means you have to be faithful even when it gets hard. Paul was writing to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he was trying to encourage them. And he said this, are you ready? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. And everybody says, amen. And you hear that, you get all jazzed up. Like you think Paul is like this motivational speaker and he's got his hair slicked back and real bright, big teeth. And he's just like bringing it. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we're not perplexed. We're yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And then life happens. And we look at Paul. We say, Paul, dude, you don't know what I've been through. 
You don't know what's going on with my kids. You don't know the world that I live in. I mean, 2018 is pretty tough. Right? You don't know what's going on in my world. But Paul understood. Paul got it. Paul just wasn't spouting stuff because his life was easy. Listen to what Paul writes a little bit later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this. He says, I, I've worked harder. And I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number. How many of you have been whipped times without? Now, some of you had rough child. Like we have a couple of kids who are just like, oh, I lost count. <laughs> I've been whipped times without number. And I have faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me the 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. That's my biggest fear. Being out in the middle of the ocean, like where sharks can get me, ain't having it. Don't want it. Paul had to face it. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. Been there. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. Haven't been there. But I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then, besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray? Come on, Paul. Paul got it. Paul understood He was having a moment where he had to be a little bit of braggadocious to prove a point. But he was saying, I get it, guys. I understand life. It's hard. It's not easy. I've been there. And if God is with me, as he is with you, then regardless of what I face, I can be faithful. Amen? God's promises don't always work like a microwave. They're often more like a crock pot. Any crock pot cookers in the house? Yeah. Here's the last thought. Just real quick. You ready? If you want to live like it's true, then we need to adjust our attitude to fit our beliefs. I think it was Gandhi. I'm not really sure. I didn't really look it up this week. I've just heard it enough to just go ahead and say it was him. That said, if one-tenth of what you Christians said is true then you ought to be ten times more excited than you actually are. I think that was Gandhi. You know, oftentimes we talk about these incredible promises of God, um, but the attitude we live with is anything but an attitude that reflects the kind of promises that he makes. If our God really is who he says he is and he can do what he really what he says he can do, then that should change the way we feel and the way we live and the attitude that we engage this world, right? Yeah. I'm going to suggest to you this morning this, that if out of anyone on the whole planet, we who wear the name of our Lord ought to be the most optimistic, 
positive and hopeful people who live on the planet Earth. We should be the least complaining and the least critical and the least negative if what we say is really true. So how do my beliefs affect my attitude? Just real quickly. First one is that I choose to believe that I'm a fully loved, I am fully loved by God and complete in Him. Listen, most of my life, I cared more about what people thought about me than anything else. I was what you call codependent. And if you said something to me on a Sunday morning that was even slightly negative or a little bit critical, it just messed me up. I lived and died by the words that people spoke into my life. I would do anything to keep people happy. It would ruin my day when they weren't. If you didn't like a message, I would question everything. Well, i got to rewrite that. I can't ever do that message again because that, that, that just didn't work. It caused me to live my life with my head hung, constantly searching back and forth, trying to find affirmation from other people. Now listen, I love you. And it hurts me from time to time when someone says something a little bit negative. And it blesses me when someone says something positive and something good in my life. But hear this, I don't live by the words that people say. I choose not to. I know who I am. And I am a child of God. And that makes all the difference in the world. And at the end of the day, I know this, that I am fully loved by Him. 100%. And it is a wonderful day in my life and in your life when that becomes true. And, I, and we stop needing to validate ourselves by the words of other people. Then you'll know what God intended for you. Here's a second thought is that I believe God is fully in charge and I share in his victory. It's amazing how often we become hopeless about the things going on around us. And if I truly believe that God is in charge and I believe that victory is found completely in him, then it changes my attitude about things. Listen, I want to be engaged with this world and I want to help it and I want my life to matter and to turn this world into a more positive thing. But here's the truth, is that if it doesn't work, and if this world just gets worse and worse and worse, here's what I know. Is that I'm not a citizen of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't. Listen, I've read the end of the book. And guess what? We win. It's really true. We win. And if I believe that, then I don't have to be fearful. And I don't have to be wrapped up in all the cares of this world. Because I know where victory lies. And Jesus, here's one last thought. I believe I will live forever. If the worst thing this world can do to me is to send me to be with Jesus, then that can happen on any Monday morning because they all stink. Any. Give it. Bring it. Because I'm ready to go. Eternity is waiting for me. And I know that and I believe it, and I have hung my whole life on that truth. And it changes. It changes everything. What would it look like if we began to live as if it's true? What could God do in our lives 
If we lived as if his promises rang true and we stepped out in faith and we truly believed, think about the difference it would make in our families, in our homes, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in this world, if the people of God lived as if they believed what they said they believed. Do you? 